2: And good morning or afternoon or whatever. You're back from your weekend. I assume you're back from your weekend. I actually have no idea when you're listening to this show. But let's say you're listening to it live on Monday, uh, in which case all of the preceding applies. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit today about some stuff that excited us over the weekend. Um, In our second segment, there seems to be kind of a, a mild... Twitter rebellion going on, particularly among journalists. It's, of course, led by Maggie Haberman, uh, the Trump whisperer from The New York Times, uh, who announced that she was taking a triadus or a Twabatical uh, from Twitter uh, for reasons that she explained in an op-ed piece. Uh, but then a whole bunch of other journalists have kind of chimed in and said, well, you know, we're kind of doing the same thing, just not really working for us the way that we thought it was going to work for us. So we'll talk to media czar uh, David Fulkenflick Flick about that. Um, first, we're going to talk politics. We're going to talk politics with Alexander Burns from The New York Times uh, about the wave of progressives uh, and people who might even be to the left of progressive who are popping up in elections around the country and then I've left the final segment open for phone calls. We might return to that topic. Uh, we've got a couple of races uh, in Connecticut that fit that mold uh, but we'll see we'll let the we'll let life unfold here. We'll see what we want to talk about in that third segment but it'll, it'll just be you and me phone calls that kind of thing. All right so let's get going uh, with our first guest of the day. Alexander Burns, national political correspondent for the New York Times, has been trying to get a handle on this trend of uh, young, um, progressive, maybe even less left of typical progressive cred uh, candidates uh, seeking offices, often through primaries. He's joining us now. Um, Alexander Burns, see if you can do a better job than the fumbling setup that I just engaged in. <laughs>
3: well, well I, I thought you did quite well, actually. <laughs> we're, we're, we are sort of seeing in a number of primaries so far, uh, and it has been mostly at the state and local level, although it started to happen at the federal level as well, uh, these sort of moments of convulsion uh, within the Democratic Party, where it seems that, you know, particularly younger millennial liberal activists and voters are basically rejecting the guidance and instruction and, and traditions and expectations of the uh, conventional Democratic Party. We saw it obviously most famously uh, in in New York City with the defeat of Joe Crowley, the fourth-ranking uh, Democrat in the House of Representatives. But you've had really important and revealing primaries where sort of local Democratic machines have been defeated in places like uh, Pennsylvania and Maryland. Uh, you have uh, sort of pitched primary battles in places like Michigan, and as you mentioned, uh, of course, Connecticut. And it's a real test of sort of this next generation in the party and how it's going to shape the party's candidates in 2018 and how it's going to build a relationship, uh, an adversarial relationship, with the party's traditional leaders.
2: And I guess one of the questions is, how much do you connect the dots? I mean, you could look at that Crowley race and say, well, this whole district had tipped demographically a a long time ago. He seemed to be more concerned with national races, wasn't showing up for debates. There's lots of ways in which you could say, well, that's kind of sui generis. You can't necessarily look for that to replicate in other places. So then the question becomes, how many of these uh, other candidacies are very specific to where they are, and how much, on the other hand, do they maybe constitute a, a network?
3: Well, I guess where I would where I would attempt to square the circle there is that. The conditions you described for Joe Crowley to lose are are, are necessary but not sufficient for him to uh, be defeated the way he was, right? Mm -hmm. That if Joe Crowley had worked really hard in that race, if he had spent a lot of money, if he had not, you know, effectively moved uh, to the D.C. area years ago, uh, he probably would have won that race in spite of the mood that there is in the Democratic Party. But, Two years ago and two years before that and two years before that, uh, all of those things that we just said about Joe Crowley and not working the district very hard and being a sort of remote figure in Washington, all of those things were true, and he was not challenged, uh, let alone defeated, right? So – It seems like it takes both, that you need to have a traditional Democrat who is to some degree uh, asleep at the switch, and you need this mood of rebellion in the party. Uh, I would point out that on the same night that Crowley was defeated by a double-digit margin, which was really staggering, uh, a member of Congress – Basically, next door in Brooklyn, Yvette Clark, who ran a more aggressive campaign and took her primary more seriously, uh, was barely renominated against, again, a much younger, uh, more liberal, more activist opponent who was running for political office for the first time. So you are seeing this happen, uh, not just in places where Democrats are kind of asking for it, but especially in areas where it is sort of a, a deep blue. Uh, districts and where there's a sort of political culture of deference to a political machine of a kind that we definitely have in New York City and that you have in in big cities around the country.
2: So one of the places you looked at was Michigan, Um, and actually there's kind of two races in Michigan that are potentially uh, within the framework that we're talking about, but let's uh, first talk about the gubernatorial race.
3: Right. So the the governor's race is is the big ticket in the state this year. There's also a Senate race, but it has not uh, heated up to the same degree. Uh, Democrats have been locked out of the the governorship for eight years, totally locked out of Michigan government because they've not even had uh, a hand in either chamber of the legislature uh, since the 2010 election. So this is a really, really high stakes race uh, for Democrats in the state. And You've had this this uh, intense primary between uh, the front runner, who's a woman named Gretchen Whitmer. She's the former Democratic leader in the state Senate, uh, and has been seen as sort of a future candidate for statewide office, governor, senator, for years and years. Uh, she's running against two opponents. The one that I uh, looked at most closely is a young man named Abdul El-Sayed, who's a former uh, director of public health in the city of Detroit. He's 33 years old, and he's running as a as a much more activist Democrat. Uh, he's he's committed to Uh, creating a single-payer system on the state level. He has campaigned in an Abolish ICE shirt. Uh, He is very much a candidate in the mold of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat who beat Joe Crowley.
2: You know, one of the things that we uh, see with a lot of these candidates is that phrase single-payer system, right? There's um, a th- maybe two or three policies that kind of attach themselves pretty consistently to the kind of candidate that you're writing about. Uh, one of them ha- has to do, I think, with immigration policy. But pretty consistently, we're seeing single-payer. Um, maybe you can say a little bit more about that, um, how consistently you saw it.
3: Oh, I think it is, I would say single-payer and uh, opposition to corporate money and politics are the two themes that I heard from basically every voter and candidate I spoke to for the story. And those are not, by the way, just preoccupations of the very left wing of the Democratic Party. The co- The corporate money issue is uh, an, an enormous preoccupation among Democrats from the sort of center left to the far left. But yeah, single payer, I think, is, is if there's anything that you could describe as a litmus test for your sort of hardcore progressive voter, that is it. Uh, you've seen this in... Gubernatorial races around the country. Ben Jealous, the Democratic nominee for governor of Maryland, campaigned very hard on single payer. Uh, Same is true for Gavin Newsom. uh, The Democrat who's very likely to be the next uh, governor of California. Uh, Colin, what I would say sets uh, Abdul El Sayed apart a little bit is that he has a much more detailed uh, plan for achieving single payer than you've seen other Democrats uh, roll out. So this is, in some ways, uh, even left of the left candidates that we've seen so far because. You know, I mentioned Gavin Newsom. He campaigned on creating single payer. He never outlined, you know, these are the taxes I'm going to raise. These are the uh, services I'm going to provide. It was a sort of you know, vague commitment that liberals could latch onto if they were so inclined. In uh, this race in Michigan, you really do have a Democrat campaigning openly saying, yeah, I'm going to raise taxes uh, and I'm going to use the money that's raised in order to uh, make it so you don't have to pay health care premiums.
2: So one of the things that we've seen in polling is that younger voters, voters in their 20s, maybe early 30s, um, are much more comfortable talking about alternatives to capitalist democracy as we know it right They're much more comfortable with the word socialism Um, they're therefore much more interested in some of these candidates who might go in a more Bernie Sanders kind of direction the question of course is for the Democratic Party are there enough of them to make a difference in a primary and then will there be enough other people to make a difference in a general election like how how much of the nation has been brought along to this style of thinking
3: well, it's it's sort of an open question at this point, and we have a couple more opportunities to answer it before the end of the primary season. Michigan is one, Connecticut is another. I would point people to Florida and New York, uh, which has its— you know, New York has its state-level primaries in September because it's a confused and, and, and uh, sort of tangled-up system. Um, but, you know, I think to get to the heart of your question, you're not looking at a majority of the Democratic Party uh, that is taking these views. You have had in congressional elections— um, you 've had basically two candidates who come from this wing of the party nominated in the sixty most competitive house races, so you 're not looking at a a wall to wall takeover of the Democratic Party by the activist left. What you are seeing uh, is enough of a faction in the party that takes this view i would I would estimate it at a quarter to a third. Uh, of the party there are enough of them that even mainstream traditional democratic candidates do feel pressure to run more to the left than they have in the past that you have democratic candidates you know in places like uh, northern new jersey or uh, orange county california or the chicago suburbs uh, who have campaigned not necessarily on single payer but on something vaguer that they i'm sure everybody's heard the term medicare for all mm-hmm. which is a uh, a sort of you know, Rorschach test of a a political slogan that it can mean single payer to some people, it can mean uh, Medicare buy-in to some other people, uh, but basically it allows uh, people on the left to feel that this is a candidate who is accommodating them. Um, So that's where I would say you're seeing the biggest impact so far is in drawing the median Democratic candidate's message somewhat to the left.
2: I mean, the other thing that we saw in 2016, and we talked to these people at rallies and they showed up in the polling too, are are the people that I call the second choice Bernie people. So uh, even when the Republican field was in full flower, basically nobody had dropped out yet, you could go to a Trump rally and ask people who they would like if Trump couldn't be president, and they would say Bernie. Uh, even though at that point they had choices like John Kasich and Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush and people like that, they saw Bernie as the other guy who was anti-corporatist in a way that Trump had persuaded them that he was and and was for the restoration of an economic system on behalf of the worker as opposed to the, on behalf of the moneyed interest uh, in a way that they liked. Uh, and, and so when you look at it that way, and, and you maybe even go outside the rubric of the Democratic Party itself and talk about unaffiliated voters and maybe disgruntled Republicans, that that message positioned correctly uh, could be a very powerful one.
3: I think that's right. I think it's one of the the paradoxes of the Democratic identity crisis in 2018, that you know i think folks in washington and in the media often describe the bernie sanders message as the the more left wing and thus less electable message but and that may be true as it pertains to bernie sanders as a personality and to the specific brand of you know democratic socialism as he describes it i don't think you're going to hear democrats campaigning on that brand in places like west virginia and and north dakota but the Bigger framework uh, of messaging that you hear from folks like Bernie Sanders and candidates in his mold of going after Wall Street, going after uh, the pharmaceutical companies, saying that politics is a rigged game. Uh, That is a message uh, that appeals very, very broadly and in a lot of ways more broadly than the message uh, that Hillary Clinton delivered uh, in 2016. Colin, where I would distinguish the voters you're describing uh, from the sort of millennial left that I looked at mm-hmm. in my piece is that the the younger liberals are way more culturally liberal uh, and culturally to the left uh, than the, I think, the sort of archetype of the Bernie Sanders Trump voter who, uh, you know, I met, I met plenty of them as well. And they were, you know, they tended to be uh, older white folks who were, uh, you know, supportive of the kind of traditional labor industrial agenda that Bernie Sanders uh, describes and that, that the president certainly um, appeared to be sympathetic to during the campaign, though he's obviously governed really differently. Um, those are not necessarily voters who I, I suspect would be on board with something like abolish ICE, right? Um, but they're voters who are on board with the anti-corporate money uh, side of
2: things. Right. And one interesting way to kind of market test this a little bit, although it's very unscientific, is the fact that Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, the person who did uh, beat uh, uh, Representative Crowley, um, and now pretty much has a layup to, to win the seat, uh, against minimal Republican opposition. That means that she can travel around and bring that message to other places. And a companion piece to yours was about her going places like Kansas. I mean, the problem with this is the people who are going to come to that rally, even though you're in Kansas, are going to be, you know, this the local college chapter of our revolution or something. I mean, you're not going to be able to put her in front of the kind of voter that we were just talking about
3: no probably not and it is one of the traps that that your sort of hardcore partisans on both sides fall into um you know i remember donald trump holding a rally in central connecticut late in the primary season uh, in 2016, where he got an enormous reception, right? And then he got completely destroyed in the state in the general election. Uh, we are a divided country, but the sort of red state, blue state frame doesn't account for the fact that you know, there are a lot of Democrats in a place like Kansas, and there are even a lot of very, very liberal Democrats in a, case like, is a state like Kansas. There just aren't enough of them to win elections.
2: Right. And there, I think, are also um, some centrist and, and older Democrats, as you say, who see some of this as a kamikaze mission. You know, they, they're they even here in Connecticut. OK, there's um, Ava Bermuda Zimmerman, who's pretty much in this mold, um, probably a little bit more associated with unions than a lot of the people that you profiled. Uh, but she's trying to unseat uh, the convention choice. Susan Bicewitz for lieutenant governor. There are a lot of peak Democrats in the state who just are very nervous that she'll succeed at the primary stage and then B, kind of a kind of a problem in the general election. Make it harder for the top of the ticket Ned Lamont to win. I I think that's less true in in the other race that we're looking at here in Connecticut, which is uh, Johanna Hayes versus Mary Glassman, two Democrats seeking the nomination to take Elizabeth Esty's uh, old seat. But I mean, if Johanna Hayes, who once again, straight up single payer uh, kind of candidate, if she were to win that primary, that would be a big difference between her and Elizabeth Esty, who I think does fall in into the more, you know, Hillary Clinton, corporatist, Democrat mold that we've been talking about.
3: Right. And this is why, in some ways, this whole theme is more of a story about uh, 2019 than a story about 2018, because in, as I mentioned before, in the overwhelming majority of the truly competitive general election congressional races, you're seeing the Democrats nominate pretty conventional candidates, right? But. In some of the primaries for uh, open seats in solid blue areas or in distinctly blue-colored areas like the one uh, you just alluded to or even more the case in Queens, um, you are seeing Democrats who – you know, are are more sort of traditional Washington Democrats uh, get replaced or potentially get replaced by people who are uh, way to their left. And this this, frankly, more than anything else, is is what transformed the Republican Party uh, over the last decade. Is is you would see um, candidates in solid red areas uh, retire or get defeated in primaries and get this, and get replaced by people who are far, far, uh, far more conservative and hardline in their political orientation. And it transforms a party without necessarily affecting uh, many of the toss-up races in November.
2: But I will say that if Hayes wins the nomination in the fifth, that'll be an interesting one for you to watch, because that, that is the tippiest of the five congressional districts in Connecticut. It's, it's the one where a Republican can put together a win under certain circumstances. So if Hayes tracks way to the left of a typical fifth district Democratic nominee, um, that, I mean, that might be, I mean, even though she was kind of Chris Murphy's pick, pick to run in that, in that particular slot, that would be, an, it, you know, it's not, it's not a layup that a Democrat will, will win every time in that district. And, right. and a backlash could, uh, uh, could, could, I mean, I think it's unlikely, but uh, there could be a backlash if she's really seen as com- some kind of crypto-socialist.
3: And it is a phenomenon that we've seen in wave elections in the past where you have candidates first nominated and then elected in the general election who are uh, sort of objectively well to the left or the right of their district. Um, But because it's a wave election, voters kind of look past yeah. those ideological, uh, uh, any ideological misgivings that they may have, right? In, in 2010, Republicans elected uh, extremely conservative candidates in places like the suburbs of, of Chicago, right, which n- normally would never go for a candidate like that. So um, you will also see people elected on the Democratic side this year, in all likelihood, uh, if the cycle develops as it appears to be, you'll see people elected who are uh, really kind of ideologically out of step with the places that they represent and who will have very, very tough campaigns in two
2: years. Interesting. Well, we live in... Interesting- Interesting times. Alexander Burns, national political correspondent for The New York Times. Check out his piece from this weekend about the coming political revolution on the left. Um, Thanks for talking to me today, man. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed that. We're going to take a little break now when we come back. As promised, David Folkenflik to talk about the new ambivalence towards Twitter among prominent political journalists. I would like to, before we begin this segment, apologize for Kai Rizdaling at the end of the last segment. Kai Rizdaling is when you address the male person you are interviewing as man. Um, and the difficulty of this is that there is no corresponding way to address a female guest. For example, if I were interviewing Maggie Haberman instead of Alex Burns and I said, that was great, thanks a lot, girl. You know, that would be really <laughs> horrible. But on the other hand, man applies implies this kind of familiarity, collegiality, fraternity with your male guests. So it's best not to do that at all. Uh, And so I would like to apologize for Kyra's darling. It won't happen again. Uh, And I promise it won't happen with our next guest, David Fulkenflick. He's way too smart to let that happen anyway and way too uh, media savvy. Uh, He's NPR's uh, media correspondent and the author of Murdoch's World, the last of the old media empires. Uh, David Fulkenflick, welcome to our show. Thanks, Colin. So. Twitter was, as it tends to be, very much in the news over the weekend, uh, although at least in one respect in kind of a different way. Maggie Haberman, uh, sometimes referred to as the Trump whisperer, uh, a person who has become more famous than the average uh, political beat journalist tends to be, Partly because of her sort of love-hate relationship with Donald Trump, but but also not incidentally because of her tremendous presence on Twitter, Maggie Haberman announced uh, that she was going to take a twabatical, or a twiatus, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I'm trying to get in Merriam-Webster anyway. Those I can. New hear. to me. <laughs> All right. So. And she said she was just going to back away from Twitter because it had become an unfriendly place. And just, I mean, I don't know, the boiler argument out, it's sort of the negatives of being on Twitter outweighed the positives. And and that also kind of prompted a chorus of other journalists saying, well, everybody should read what Maggie's writing. Maybe she has a point or, you know, I'm backing away too. And so, first of all, uh, David, I think as you would point out, it's hard to not be on Twitter if you're going to cover the president who speaks to the world via Twitter?
4: Yeah, I think that that it's really almost impossible to understand uh, Trump entirely and his state of mind uh, without following him on Twitter. And this is, I think, less important for Americans and more important for the press conveying what's happening with the president to Americans, because CBS News and The New York Times and NPR and and every other little site is, is going to be able to follow his uh, his tweets. It's like a mood ring. And there was, you know, to underscore this point, there was a federal lawsuit brought uh, by a, a handful of uh, Twitter users uh, who sued the president uh, and various of his aides for blocking them uh, from his official White House uh, Twitter feed as president of the United States because they said this is an official record and document. Anything the president does in that realm is a document. It's being archived at the National Archives as well as uh, the Library of Congress sort of sweeping up everything on Twitter. But this is seen as a presidential official utterance, not a private declaration in, w- in which they're allowed to exchange back and forth. And so the, uh, the federal judge agreed uh, that, that they had the right to follow him. And this underscores the fact that that this is essentially, a, you know, a real time mood ring for what the president is thinking or what the president wants to be perceived as thinking or talking about. And so uh, you know it is that is in miniature a, a one among many ways in which Twitter is exceptionally useful uh, as a tool, both uh, uh, in terms of firsthand almost documentation of where people are coming from and also to capture some of the conversation and and, and debate about it. So okay. yeah, it's it's really useful to reporters, including me.
2: On the other hand, you know, I mean, and not to make too much of this kind of thing, because obviously, if you're reporting in Syria, you could get shot. If you're reporting in Russia, you could get locked up. Uh, But this has become a very. inhospitable climate for a lot of political journalists, especially the ones who write a lot about the president, and partly that's because he encourages it. Uh, if He he did it during the campaign at his rallies, where he would single out, uh, a, it's, it was often a woman, there's Katie Turr, horrible Katie Turr, there's horrible Maggie Haberman, and he does it on Twitter, too, and when he does it on Twitter, uh, it creates an environment where a journalist like Maggie Haberman uh, will be harassed, will be subjected uh, to quite a bit of invective. It has also been suggested that women on Twitter run into this kind of stuff more than than male journalists do. And and I don't know. I mean, I can certainly respect anybody like Maggie Haberman saying, for my own mental health, I, I just have to, I have so many stressors. I, I need to remove this one. I, I don't know. What's your reaction?
4: Well, certainly, far be it for me to disagree with uh, women journalists about their experiences on Twitter. I've certainly either seen or had exchanges with people, including. Uh, uh, not only Hayerman, but uh, Joan Walsh, who uh, with the Nation used to be with Salon. Uh, Clara Jeffrey of uh, Mother Jones, uh, Mary Catherine Hamm, a conservative writer. Uh, you know, there there are just far too many women to count uh, who say that they are subjected routinely not only to hostile uh, reactions, not only to mansplaining, not only to hostile reactions, not only to angry reactions, but to actually clearly abusive reactions. And that doesn't hold only for women. Uh, my my friend and former colleague uh, Jonathan Weissman of The New York Times wrote a book about you know, inspired by his experiences about being a political journalist and, and editor or Subsequently, at the New York Times during the 2016 cycle, and also being Jewish and experiencing what that was life. I like I had a small taste of that. You know, I've experienced people uh, uh, tweeting Holocaust-related things at me. I happen to be Jewish, uh, but uh, uh, I think that you know it, it, it is a source of great utility, uh, and it it can allow people uh, through uh, anonymity, uh, through uh, just the imp- personality of the of the medium. Uh, to, to be extraordinarily abusive and, and 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 invasive. I don't think we should think that that's uh, unique to Twitter. And I don't think we should think that's unique to the, the age of Donald Trump. If you talked about uh, 4chan uh, or other social media uh, uh, platforms, uh, sometimes in the sub-tweets at Reddit, uh, people can get quite abusive for each other and uh, not sub-tweets, but, you know, the sub-discussions happening on the site. You know, this happens in Facebook as well. But Twitter, it... It seems to be so public, and it's it's a place where pu- uh, public figures are personally engaging so much that even as they're reporting, analyzing, offering one-liners, whatever, somebody like Maggie Haberman, who's you know a pretty sharp-elbowed practitioner of of Twitter, we should forget she's not you know a, a wallflower here. This is somebody who came up; uh, her father was a prominent journalist. Uh, uh, at the New York Times, as well as the Daily News, as she had uh, worked at the New York Post. You know, she has a bit of a, hey, I'm going to punch back if people are punching at or questioning the integrity of my journalism. And people did that from the right and left to, to Haberman. But she got a, a heck of a lot of abuse as a result.
2: Yeah, I think also I'm glad you mentioned that part of it because the other thing about Maggie Haberman, two things that have always struck me about her work on Twitter. One of them is she's also a tremendous curator on Twitter. I mean, if you just looked at Maggie Haberman's own Twitter feed, she retweets all kinds of stuff that she thinks is important. It's like she's almost a publisher. She's publishing a newspaper comprised of links uh, of things that she thinks are really interesting. And she was really good at that. But she also was, as a lot of journalists are, David, a little bit more herself, a little bit more opinionated uh, when on Twitter than than she would be in a fully vetted New York Times column or piece or, or, or whatever. And I mean, every single news organization has all kinds of policies in which they try to spell this stuff out. But the reality is, for many, many journalists, Twitter is an area where you can at least go 10%, 20% further towards your own take on things than probably your home publication or media outlet would let you do. Uh, and, and that's another part of this, right? It's a, one of the reasons that Twitter maybe becomes a place where Maggie Haberman finds herself in arguments.
4: Yeah. I mean, look, there, there's good and bad to this, right? Uh, not everybody has a midday talk show like you do, Colin. Mm-hmm. So not everybody has a column for years that, uh, you know, is read by in their Metro uh, readership in which they're allowed to engage. So not everybody can do a playful, uh, playful little gentle tweak of a Kai doll and have it <laughs> then heard by their fellow journalists, their fellow, uh, their, you know, their friends and colleagues outside the walls of their newsroom as well as inside, right? And right. so it's a way to kind of uh, flex a muscle, release a little creativity, show a spark of life. You know, some people build brands, other people build bridges. And I think there are ways in which insights are gleaned and shared that are off the cuff that are not worth or not able uh, to be shared uh, in print or online or on the air in in a more formal way. But this is a way people can say, "Hey, this is something worth knowing." Here's a piece of context. You know, uh, when I did uh, stories about uh, uh, Tronk basically announcing it would cut the New York Daily News in half uh, today. And I was able to add context, actually. Somebody else did it for me, and I pointed to this person of tweets I had done some months ago about the extraordinary corporate executives' compensation at (laughs) Tronk, even as they're cutting the place in half. And so, you know, this is context. Is it something I would have time while talking to you and doing other stories uh, to do an entire separate take on? No, but it's a way in which you can add value and hundreds of people are getting to see that through through that being shared or thousands of people, who knows. So, you know, it's it's very, very useful. But that said, people are drawn into it. Sometimes they're drawn into fights. You find people who take issue with coverage at time, particularly a prominent journalist, getting quite angry about things. And then you find people being actually abusive, being abusive on the basis of, of gender or race or, or ethnicity, uh, being abusive on the nature of just questioning the person's integrity to the point of, you know, questioning their humanity and, and Twitter's uh, uh, corporate execs, Jack uh, Dorsey, who's one of the top execs there, has, has tweeted about this earlier in the year and again in recent days and tweeted about the need to figure out ways to essentially rejigger the formulas so that you're seeing stuff that are valuable to you and are not simply distractions and not simply uh, hostilities. But it's even when it's useful. It is intentionally designed to compel you to use more and more of your uh, free and not free time on the platform itself. It is designed to suck you in a little bit like a narcotic (laughs) or maybe not even just a little bit. Uh, And as a result, you know, Haverman's reservations, as she laid them out in the pages of her paper on Sunday, uh, were multifold because she said, God, am I just getting sucked into this, both the the. Not constructive use of my time, and even in constructively just seeing uh, things in the array that Twitter would present it to me as opposed to the way my reporting might point to.
2: Right. She has tweeted 187,000 times, which, uh, you know, that would worry me. Just Holy
4: in terms of- cow. That is a lot <laughs> of times to be tweeting. And look, I, I should spend less time on it, and yet my ability to spend time on it allows me to anticipate the news before it happens. It's very useful.
2: So let me just flip this around in the other direction for a second, David, because I think there's another way in which journalism is is challenged here. And um, Charlie Sykes uh, brought it up in a a piece over the weekend. Charlie Sykes, uh, originally known as a conservative talk show host, now kind of a prominent never Trumper conservative uh, columnist. But, you know, there's a way in which we as journalists have fallen into the trap a little bit, not just with Trump, but with any politician or any newsmaker of covering a tweet like it were a thing, you know. So Bob Corker tweets, that's it. I've had it that that. And that was a horror show there in Helsinki. We can't put up with that anymore. And, and then he's basically done. And then the rest of us run and cover it. Like, well, now the tide's turning. Things are really changing. Um, and one of the things I don't think we've necessarily developed is a metric for evaluating the actual weight of a tweet. I, th- I don't think that weight is very great, you know. But there's a way in which we we run and we cover the tweet. and And that excuses the newsmaker from doing anything else. It's like, I tweeted, sure. they covered it, we're done.
4: Look, I mean, one of the things that I said at the outset of the presidency, I may have even talked about this with you at the time in January of 2017, was the idea that every paper should find a way to dedicate some space on page six or eight of the front section and say, you know, Trump's tweets today, you know, the triple T, and that you can just sort of slap it in there and then you can forget about it. It turns out that's not going to be useful enough. In terms of understanding, why is the North Korean dictator saying what he did? Oh, well, it turned out the president tweeted at him six times, you know, between the hours of six and eight while watching Fox and Friends. You know, that that matters. That has an effect. I do think that, you know, one of the things we've seen in recent uh, days, as an example, are Trump's tweets about uh, what. Uh, certain court documents show mm. about uh, Carter Page his former foreign policy aide suspected by uh, uh, intelligence, national security uh, uh, officials of having been turned into a Russian asset uh, or at least having been, uh, you know, uh, 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 pursued by the Russians in that manner. Uh, and he he said things that clearly contradicted the facts and the truth. When Reuters or the Associated Press or other news agencies put out alerts and put out tweets that say president says so-and-so and and leave it unencumbered by actual uh, validating or invalidating facts, I think that's a real disservice. I think that's a way in which the, you know, uh, staccato kind of Telegram-length uh, uh, messages served up by Twitter sort of lull uh, journalists at times into relaying uh, uh, what's being said there and alleged, particularly by this president, and this administration, who often not only strays from the facts but seems totally estranged from them. Uh, in a way that I think dis- is a disservice to to their audiences. So I think it's important even if you're uh, following those brief utterances to surround them with, you know, an army of the truth and an army of facts because I think one of the things we've learned is that when you marry uh, a rough rhetoric uh, and deceit or at times uh, misleading statements or and NPR doesn't usually use this term but I, you know, I do at times, at times they are they appear to be outright lies. Uh, they have to be surrounded by truth and context, and that's one of the things Twitter can be very good at, and it's one of the th- things Twitter can be very bad at. It's almost as though Twitter Twitter is an amplification vehicle for our virtues and our vices all at once.
2: That is perfectly put, uh, as we would expect from David Fulconflict, uh, NPR a media correspondent. And I also have to say uh, we've been enjoying the work that you've been doing, occasionally hosting On Point. It's been fun. Uh, yeah. So, uh, David, I value you very much as a person. Uh, thank you for joining the show today.
4: <laughs> I value you as a person. <laughs> take care, Colin.
2: <laughs> okay. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. When we come back, there'll be no guests. that will be just you and me. I, I want to revive the conversation that, I- or the topic, anyway, that I had with Ale- Alex Burns at the beginning. He's talking about a way in which voters are, in some Respects attracted to some of these candidates who who at least appear to track to way to the left of center, uh, but maybe what people are really attracted to is an anti-corporatist candidate of any kind, a candidate who who's promising to uh, give the average person uh, a leg up, some help up in trying to compete for scarce resor- uh, scarce resources with corporations. So. I did a very poor job of setting that up. But anyway, um, what are you looking for? What's important to you? If you had to make a choice, say, in the upcoming Democratic primary between a Johanna Hayes and a Mary Glassman, how would you make that choice? 860-275-726, 860-275-7266. And we will be back. Let Let him tweet,
1: let him tweet, let him tweet, let him tweet. Next stupid statements let him tweet.
0: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan. With help from me, Kion Wolf, and our intern Xandra Ellen. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bernie Sanders. On tomorrow's show, revisit our conversation about Connecticut dance halls and shaboo. And now, back to Colin.
2: Oh, this is, you know, this has been a very confusing summer for me in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways that it's been confusing, I'm just going to mention this in passing, and then I'm going to move back to the topic that I'm throwing out here to get phone calls in just a second. We have these two visiting animal scholars in our house. They've been with us since, I don't know, they must have arrived in... June, right? (laughs) Still there. Uh, There's a cat named Sad Cat. uh, And then there's a dog named Dr. Evil. Uh, And the dog, Dr. Evil, is a Border Collie. And he seems like a very nice dog when you first meet him. But I've discovered, and I think this might be kind of a Border Collie thing, I think his goal is world domination. I mean, he basically is the boss of our house. Or thinks he's the boss of our house now. He's only been living here since June. He's theoretically going to be gone sometime in August. But he has basically declared himself, you know, like governor for life or something uh, of our house. And I think he wants to take over your house too, and then the next house, and then the next house. He wants everybody to do all of his border collie stuff. So uh, if I seem a little jumbled, if I seem, I, I, I want you to know that I'm contending every day with a very powerful will. Uh, that uh, wants to dominate me, and that is Dr. Evil, the Border Collie. All right, so let's go back to the topics here. <clears throat> um, and this will tie in with David Fulkin Flick a little bit. D- James Comey. Remember when James Comey like didn't really have a Twitter account, or he did, but it was like a secret one with a special name or something like that, and there was only one tweet? Well James Comey now <laughs> has his Twitter account, and here's what he tweets today, today, this very day, or maybe it was yesterday. Democrats, please, please don't lose your minds and rush to the socialist left. This president and his Republican Party are counting on you to do exactly that. America's great middle wants sensible, balanced, ethical leadership. So first of all, isn't that a little weird that James Comey is telling people how to vote now? I mean, he was this kind of rigorously supposedly anti-political FBI director, except when he got really involved in politics, which happened on in monumental ways. But um, but now <laughs> now he's like really worried that we're going to vote for you know Ava Bermuda Zimmerman or something. We're going to lose our minds. Um, but he's. He is framing the question that we started the show out with in his own way. Um, and he is not alone in that particular concern. So Representative Jim Himes, a congressman here from our own 4th District, uh, is saying a similar similar thing. This is an, a, an article uh, I happened across today where uh, it's, uh, he's talking about the, the exact same fear. Uh, the latest irritant for him, uh, a proposal to scrap Immigration and Customs Enforcement, otherwise known as ICE, uh, he says it harms us in areas where we need to Win," says Heims, the chairman of the 68-member New Democrat coalition. To my progressive friends who got excited about abolish ICE, I understand the emotions, the moral vacuum that is involved in splitting up families. Blah 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 blah. I'm not going to go on reading this, but in general. His biggest problem is concern is a bigger concern than just ICE. Uh, he's chairman of something called the 68 member New Democrat Coalition, and, which I assume is kind of um, a current version of the old Democratic Leadership Council, kind of a centrist uh, version of the Democratic Party. He's worried that it, it could blow its chance by veering too far to the left in a, rep- in a reaction to President Donald Trump. So that's very similar to the kind of thing that we're talking about with Alex Burns at the beginning of the show. As you look around the country, there are these candidates they are often younger and their supporters are often younger um, and they want something different. Uh, they don't want the Democratic Party as it has existed from, at minimum, since 1992 to the present. That is the the Democratic Party of—oh, um, of course, another person who has been writing about this exact same thing is Joe Lieberman. Joe Lieberman was writing in the Wall Street Journal about the exact—he's very worried that Democrats are going to vote for uh, candidates who are too far to the left. Um, so I want to ask you how that plays with you, because it's it was clear— in 2016 that there was an appetite at least on, on in parts of the Democratic Party and also parts of the unaffiliated electorate um, for, if not something that tracks further to the left, at least doesn't resemble the corporatist Democratic Party that we have grown familiar with. Um, by the way, number is 860-275-7266 if you want in on this conversation. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. So as you look around the country, you can see that popping up. And, and I almost do think that the terminology that I've been using is the wrong terminology. That tracking to the left, for example, that may not explain it very well. Sure, when you have a younger candidate, candidate often of color, a candidate who's a woman, uh, these are often uh, ways of attracting a constituency that tired of a party dominated by white males who have a kind of consistent vision uh, of things. And then if that candidate, say, does favor the abolition of ICE uh, and the institution of Medicare for all or some version of a more coherent uh, uh, health care reform than, than what we've had so far. I mean, all of that, you know, begins to sort of line up with the Bernie Sanders movement within the party. But I don't think these things are all have to be the same thing. And I don't think that saying that they track to the left is an adequate description. And I also think it is possible to appeal to a discontented voter, both within the Democratic Party, within the unaffiliated and, and even within the Republican Party, because God knows there are Republicans right now who are very uncomfortable uh, with the direction of things uh, uh, under President Trump. It's possible to appeal to those kinds of people in a different way, in a way that doesn't necessarily manifest itself so, identi- so identifiably as the politics of the left. And, you know, I think as Alex Burns was saying too, if you're going to run around saying that you're a socialist, you're just going to lose a certain number of people. It's not clear how many people you're going to lose. And certainly in the younger demographic, they are not afraid of that word, not the same way, say, my generation was. So I don't know if I've presented to, to you in, um, in, in a coherent, intelligible, Conundrum, But let's say I have. Let's pretend I have. Call 860-275-7266 and just tell me how you see those kinds of questions playing out in the current cycle. All right. As usual, we have lots of guys calling in. So it would also be good if a woman would call in, 860-275-7266. But for now, I'm quite happy to start with Peter in Stanford. Hi, Peter. You're on the air.
1: Hi. uh, This is what I've uh, thought of uh, as like a paradigm. Like the right, uh, it thinks uh, maybe. This is a simple; it's a very simplified version. That the right, uh, the, the libertarian, Ayn Rand right, would look at uh, corporations taking care of America, and the left would uh, characterize that the government would be taking care of people. So you have, uh, you know, corporations versus government. And uh, I think both have sort of failed in a way or, or, you know, I mean, I don't think corporations can take care of America. You know, if they took care of my dad, I actually, I grew up in Greenwich and uh, we got a, a good living back in the, uh, you know, the man in the gray flannel suit days, the how to get rich in business without even trying days. Those days are over. But the government is also it has you know, mild success. But they got, the government educates, you know, 90 percent of the population. Uh, so, you know, I, I think maybe we should need a a a a. a A workers, well, there's there's less and less workers, uh, like the uh, 19th century Marxists would have it. But I think uh, you know unions are 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 dwindling away, and and uh, the powers of the workers, and you know I think this whole topic can deserve you know a whole couple of uh, shows. All
2: right. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so your point is just very quickly because I want to be able to get a few more callers on the air. Sure. Um. So, well, actually, let's just go from there. I mean, I think Peter has set up the paradigm pretty well. Let's go from there to Alan. Uh, here's Alan in Seymour. Hi, Alan.
1: Hi. Um. Yeah, I'm one of the uh, young left socialists that Joe Lieberman seems to be uh afraid of voting. Right. Uh, um. I don't think that uh, if it were any other year, I would vote any differently than I would this year. Um. I'm. Not voting left just because I'm upset that the right's winning and I would be voting left even if uh, we were in a... Third year
2: of Obama. So, Alan, let me ask you a question. Do you feel as though you are currently offered choices that do map pretty well onto your desires? In other words, uh, you know, I, th- I think in the Sanders movement in 2016, uh, a lot of people your age were saying, well, yeah, finally somebody's saying stuff that I believe. I haven't really been hearing that from, from any sector so far. How does it feel for you here in
1: 2018? Um, I'm not seeing anyone that's... Uh really exciting me in the way that Sanders did, mm-hmm. but uh, I have been pretty happy with uh, the nominees for governor, and I haven't been paying too much attention to the uh, vice governor or lieutenant governor race. But
2: How about that? Do, um, you, do you live in the 5th District? I'm trying to think about Seymour would either catch an edge of it or just miss. Uh, would, would you be voting, I'm assuming you're a registered Democrat, would you be voting in the primary, the Glassman-Hayes primary? Uh, I will be. All right. I believe. So I'm guessing you're a Hayes voter, but maybe I'm completely yes. wrong. Yes. Yeah. And yes. I'm once again, she's talking about single payer stuff like that. That's yeah. meaningful to you. All right. Well, listen. Thanks for calling, Alan. I want to get uh, to uh, Pam in Branford. Hi, Pam. You're on the air.
0: Good morning. Morning. Good afternoon.
2: Afternoon. <laughs> I don't care. It's all. We're all in a time warp anyway.
0: Um, I want to make a comment to what you said about James Comey. Hmm. Saying to not to vote too far on the left. I was a, I was a registered independent for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. And after Trump got elected, I went down and changed parties. I went over to Democrat. Mm-hmm. I figured they would need the help. And I have to tell you, at this point, I would vote for anybody on the Democratic side. It could be a billy goat there. <laughs> and I would vote Democrat over what's going on now. And I'm a retiree, so, you know, I have really no stake in economy at this point. I'm a retired federal employee. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's horrific
2: what's going on now. It's so, just terrible. Yeah. So, so you're saying though that you're, you're going to be a little bit less discriminating about who's offered to you as an alternative, right? Um, all right. Well, listen. Thanks. First of all, thanks for making that point. You know, it's also interesting that you say that you, you figured that they needed help. I got an email today from somebody who was saying, "I'm an unaffiliated voter." I'm upset uh, with Trump's America. Should I register as Republican so I can vote in the primary to make sure that they, you know, pick better people or whatever? And I just wrote back and said I don't, I don't think it's my place to advise you about this. But I think a lot of people. I'm surprised there, there's a Max Rees story that's up right now saying I'm doing this from memory, but 275,000 new registrations in Connecticut since 2016, uh, of which he said I think about 80,000 were Democrats, 40,000. Were Republicans, but that means that more that means like oh, I'm doing the math off the top of my head, but it seems like 150,000 of those are unaffiliated voters. And Pam, I'm amazed by that. People who don't want to vote in primaries or people who are just so committed to their unaffiliated status that they're not going to vote in primaries. I'm I'm sure, I'm I'm unsurprised by your decision, and but surprised that other people would register unaffiliated. And, and one
0: other comment, you know, what of people on the right say? There's all this hatred coming from the left. It's, it's not hatred coming from the left. It's, they're, they're trying to make it look like we're the, we are the problem. You know what? They, they're the ones that chose this platform. They chose this platform of sexism, racism, homophobia, xenophobia. They chose this horrifying platform. And then we're supposed to sit quietly and demurely and just accept all this? All, all these uh, agendas that they have. And
2: um, if we
0: don't, if we don't, if, if we become, you know, if we rise up because we're we're rejecting this agenda, then we're the problem. Well, it's their platform that's the problem. It's their platform that's hatred. It's not hatred coming from the left.
2: Um, it's Pam, theirs. Pam, you I'm know? gonna I'm gonna have to edit there, I, but I.
0: I- I just wanted to get that point out too, because I hear that a lot. We have Trump derangement syndrome, blah blah blah. Yeah. it's all it's BS. It's just manipulation.
2: Thank you for checking your impulse to say the actual word. I got I heard that happen, uh, and I'm uh, very grateful, uh, Pam. You're going to be the last caller of the day. I don't dare uh, take anybody else, but Lily, David, Scott, some of the other people who called up. I'm very sorry we didn't get to you. Um, we'll do this more often. Uh, you know, we've been doing these. Uh, Monday shows where we don't have any guests and people just call up. And I really like doing it a lot. But after last week, I worried that maybe I was over-relying on this format. If you have an opinion, by the way, you can always let us know at WNPR Colin on the Twitters, at WNPR Colin, or you can email me, uh, Colin at WNPR.org. But in any case, thank you for listening today anyway, and I hope you'll enjoy what we do tomorrow.